Space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster podcast. On this episode, we have lots of news to talk about, everything from the awards for the Lunar Human Landing System to an upcoming new crew launch, a helicopter on another planet, nuclear engines. Uh, we're going to run through all of that great stuff. So I'm here with Robin and Chris, as usual, and let's get into it. Robin, uh, how you doing? Thank you, Jamie, and uh, happy 420. Thanks. And uh, <laughs> we are... Uh, we're gathering today with Chris and the three of us are together because there's like a deluge of space news these last <laughs> few days. And it's not just, you know, your everyday satellite, you know, satellite story. It's uh, some pretty big stuff happening and uh, we're not going to waste your time. We need to jump into it. The very big story right now. And on a personal level, from my perspective, I saw this story as detonating like a nuclear weapon in our industry. Um, people are it had different effects to different parts of the industry, different parts of the company. But the gist of it is this. NASA has awarded the uh, human landing systems contract to bring humans back to the moon for the first time since 1972 solely to SpaceX, which is was a big surprise to everyone. There was uh, many other competitors. There was three main competitors, but the national team was mm-hmm. multiple organizations. Uh, Chris, you want to give us the read of... What exactly happened there? Yeah, so a lot of us had been expecting at least two of these companies, uh, two, two of the three that had competed for the initial round of contracts, which which, which was known as option A, which was basically mm-hmm. just everything that was needed to get through the first lunar landing return, the one that right. had been targeted for 2024, and that SpaceX's Starship actually kind of keeps on the table in a way, although I really wouldn't put a lot of faith in 2024 sticking right now. But Starship at least continues to hold that as a possibility for them. So let's break it down, Chris, uh, before we even get into the result. So one team was Dianetics. Mm -hmm. One team was the national team. Let's remind our audience who was on that national team. Yeah, because it it kind of makes it seem like there are fewer players than there really were. Right. It, yeah, it, it, it really does. But, but you know, so the national team was actually a really cool idea. Um, so it was yeah. spearheaded primarily by Blue Origin as the lead, right. but it also included Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper. And, you know, a lot of those are really big names in the aerospace industry and sort of coming together to say, well, why don't we do this together instead of doing separate bids? And to be perfectly honest, I think the industry really expected the national team and SpaceX to get two awards. To I think that forward. was everyone. I think that was everyone's expectation here. Yes, because while the Dynetics lander is, is immensely cool, and I do truly wish them the best of luck, and, and I hope they're able to come back and compete for these new contracts that are coming right. as well. There will be more. For, yes. From NASA, right. It, what this basically came down to was really the cost as well as the technical risk associated with the designs. So first and foremost, you know, the the previous presidential administration uh, had requested about $3 billion roughly to fund the lunar lander, which was already calling into question how they were going to pick two of them, right? And basically when it looked like they weren't going to get enough money and they had these three proposals, the evaluation came down to SpaceX came in as the cheapest with a total contract proposal of $2.9 billion. That's billion with a B, which 
is a lot of money for everyday people, but insanely cheap when we are talking about missions that have to return human beings to another planet and yeah. sustain okay. them. Go, going, you to know? The, yeah. going to the G-dang moon yeah, seems like, like yeah, cheap for 2.9 are you going to buy billion. a toilet? Like, well, <laughs> and, and especially since what SpaceX is delivering with that $2.9 billion is a lander that NASA can use as many times as they want. Right. And You're basically all they have to shot. tell SpaceX is, hey, we're going to use it, so bring it back to low Earth orbit, refuel it, get it back to the moon for us. All of that for $2.9 billion. That's amazing. Now, that $3 billion that NASA was getting under the funding agreement wasn't $3 billion up front. It was like a phased thing. So when they were looking at these contracts, the next closest bid in terms of price was Blue Origin and the national team, but they were, quote, substantially higher than SpaceX's, had more risk associated with them from a technical standpoint than Starship did, and crucially, made themselves ineligible to receive one of the awards because they specifically wrote a proposal that called for things that NASA is legally obliged to not do, like provide they needed advanced payments money. for things. Exactly. Right. Right. And mm. government right. contracts Which is can't against pay for things like that. Right. right. So there was this interesting note that had the proposal been cheaper or carried less of a risk, NASA might have gone to Blue Origin as they did with SpaceX to go, look, you can't change anything that you told us you'd give us, but what can you change in terms of the pricing structure? And what threw it completely to SpaceX was SpaceX coming back and saying, well, we can't make it cheaper. Like, we're not Scotty from Star Trek. We don't inflate our estimates by a factor of four. When we say $2.9 billion, that's what we mean. And by the way, we're also funding an equivalent amount of that ourselves. Right. Yeah. Which is absolutely necessary because exactly whatever the SpaceX is bidding, it's going to cost way more than that. Yeah. That oh, was my yeah. question is how much yeah. of this do you think is subsidized by SpaceX itself in order to get this? Contract? It'll have to be more yeah. than half when it's all said and done. So, yeah. so it says about half, but one thing to keep in mind about that half is part of what SpaceX is continuing to develop. Isn't just the lunar version that NASA gets, right? A bunch mm -hmm. of the systems, the life support systems, the interior of the vehicle, the super heavy booster, right? Which we haven't seen one of those fully completed and rolled out yet at the South right. Texas launch site. There's so much overlap in this that when SpaceX says they're funding half of it, well, of course they are, not because of some weird uh, desire to like underbid the competitors, but because they just literally have to, because what they're offering NASA is a slightly altered version of what they themselves are just developing as the baseline vehicle. Yeah. Right? It's so like it's Boeing not, yeah. was going to, if, if Boeing was going to sell you a specialized 747, you're not going to pay for the entire development of all the 747s on <laughs> earth. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly the whole point of what SpaceX is trying to drive to the airline model, right? We can yeah. custom, you know, we can, we can trick it out. So it's on, you know, I don't even know, like grand plane designs or whatever, or grand starship designs. I don't know some MTV show about cribs, um, <laughs> you know, um, but the world's most expensivest <laughs> spacecraft. And it's just all the spacecraft. It's just SLS. <laughs> exactly. Like you, we can trick them out however you want us to, but the basic design is the basic design upon which we have to work.
Right. Yeah, there's one one thing I just want to pull you back to, though. I don't think we've yeah. touched the thought about how they were saying they couldn't cut the cost, but they right. could spread it out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so not really spread it out, but basically saying, okay, so on payment one, and I'm pulling a number completely at random here, like payment one, we were delivering all of this and we said 500 million, well, we can make the first payment 200 million. And basically all they did was they changed the amount they were asking for at each point to still equal the 2.9 billion, but basically help fit within the funding structure that NASA actually received and how NASA is going to receive that from the federal government over the next year and a half. Yeah, see, now that sounds like a, a nice, logical, smart way to deal with the government. And I'm wondering, how did an organization that is not just one company, but several companies that have had government contracts in the past put together a proposal that, as you just pointed out, it cannot be funded because of like pure policy, like law? Yeah. So Blue Origin and the national team say that this was a simple oversight on their mistake. Take that statement for what you will, Jamie, given I I agree with exactly what you just said. These are agencies and and organizations that that have government contracts. So how it got in there, they say it's an oversight, but... Not a big confidence builder, guys. (laughs) Right. But but NASA also made the point of saying like, but if the proposal had had less technical risk, if the end had been cheaper, they would have gone to them because they are are allowed per government rules for contracting and and, and getting these things to say, okay, well, we told you you can't do that and you can't do that. So you got to amend the contract to take it out. But while you're at it... (laughs) go amend your payment structure as well. But it was just too expensive. It never would have worked. And Dynetics had some tech- had technical risk as well, but was even more substantially expensive than the Blue Origin bid. And we don't know what the Blue Origin bid was. All we know is that it was, quote, significantly higher than SpaceX's bid at $2.9 billion. So, I mean, you can see how cheap these vehicles are starting to become. And, and, and remember, too, You know, there's a lot more that goes into a lunar variant of a starship than goes into the base variant. But remember, too, SpaceX bid a starship for a small satellite mission earlier, late last year. And when NASA released the whole things, we found out they bid like two million with an M for a full up starship vehicle. (laughs) So, I mean, like. It's it's incredible the, the the price points that we're seeing, not just being offered the government for services like that but but in general to to the larger community for launch operations for the for this vehicle eventually it's incredible to think about a rocket company more or less taking the tactic of selling what is a little bit of a loss leader at this early stage you know (laughs) like they're like we'll sell them the game console but we'll make it up later when they buy all those video games you know there's like this sense that (laughs) if they can get a foothold in the market Later, you know, they can start making up this money over a very long term rather than treating it as a single space project, the only one they're ever going to do that has to pay for everything. It's a long-term view. And that is the crux of the view of Elon's companies. It's how Tesla operated. It's how SpaceX has operated, right? Like, you still have enough capital to keep going, but it's about building the reputation and it's about building the system that gets people back, gets it cheap enough to offer to people, but that gets you back in the door you know, to keep coming back to them. So we know why this decision was made from the kitchen's perspective. We know like Mm -hmm. what went wrong there in the contracts and, you know, there was a technical snafu, but from an outsider perspective, 
SpaceX, you know, to the everyday person who isn't aware of like what's going on inside the ballpark here from an outside perspective, you could say that SpaceX was given this responsibility because they are the only ones in that group who has flown humans. It's the only, they're the only ones in that group who have shown progress, public progress in development of the vehicle that they pitched, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, the other uh, ones were all drawings, I believe, right? So Blue there Origin had were, a mock-up? So yeah, so all, all of them were required in the in the initial 10-month period to develop uh, what were known as, quote, high-fidelity mock-ups. Right. <laughs> so basically, NASA and the astronaut corps could get into them and start getting a sense of the space and what was going to be in there and how they were going to operate. And that that's a huge factor too, like listening to mm-hmm. the astronauts. And that was expressly stated in NASA's decision for choosing Starship as well. I think it was Kathy Leaders or Lisa, and I'm blanking on her last name right now, who's the head of the human lander system for NASA. They both said like what Starship offered in terms of internal volume for the crew to live and work was outstanding. The fact that it had two airlocks for redundancy was incredible. The fact that it can bring 100 metric tons to the lunar surface is uh, on one flight is incredible. I I mean, the list just went on and on and on. I mean, isn't uh, it something equivalent to what... Chris, isn't it something that's equivalent to the size available, the space available on the space station? Yes. So the basically the habitable volume of a crewed starship is the same habitable volume of the International Space Station. That is roughly there. A yeah. really <laughs> insane data point. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and just just for reference for everybody, that's roughly equivalent to an empty passenger plane. Like if right. you took all the seats out and everything, that's yeah. the interior volume of the of the space station. So that's mm-hmm. like just think of all the things that you could get to space. Okay, uh, and well, is that just for crew or is that payload or how are we dividing up that giant cylinder? So that is, I believe, the crew variant from what we understand. So, you know, part of Starship's internal structure for crew variants will be taken up with all of the life support equipment and things like that. And this lunar variant will also have a cargo bay and a cargo hold. First time we're doing that with a lunar vehicle as well. So basically... What we keep talking about or what you keep hearing people talk about, about, oh, there's a cargo version of Starship, and then, oh, there's a human version of Starship. Well, the lunar s- version is basically you take both of those and you smash them together, and you get a cargo <laughs> and crew variant of the vehicle. You know what we should do, guys? We need to measure how exponentially in mass is Starship bigger than the last thing to land on the moon uh, with humans in it in 1972. Oh, yeah, man. It's got to oh, be like from a mass insane. perspective? Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. Lunar, lunar lander. lander. <laughs> weighed, it weighed like 11 ounces and was the size of a thimble. <laughs> so, yeah. It was a paper was airplane of, compared uh, to Star Aluminum foil and witches. You know? uh, yeah, uh, pretty much. But I, but I also want to point out something, too, about this lunar design that could translate to something else that, that isn't really being talked about yet. This lunar variant that, that has the mashup of a crew compartment and a cargo hold, that holds incredible possibilities for human servicing missions of satellites and telescopes in Earth orbit, where you That's need really a exciting. large yeah. cargo hold to bring stuff yeah. up. But you need we, we need to put more telescopes well. in space. And, and I think Starship yeah. is going to be one of those, you know, it's going to create opportunity yeah. that wasn't there before to la- launch larger objects in a more timely manner. Yeah. yeah. 
it'll be really great. When shuttle existed, it changed all that oh, just because it had that yeah. big old payload yeah. bay. And now we're taking a step even further than that. Shuttle made Hubble possible. We have to start yeah. thinking about what Starship is going to make possible. Yeah. And, you know, people tend to remember only the after Challenger part of the space shuttle program, but the shuttles right. also successfully demonstrated the ability to go up mm-hmm. and grab satellites and bring them back for repair and relaunch and also to go up and just service them on orbit, not just the yeah. Hubble telescope, but other satellites like operational telecommunications satellites. I mean, this is all possible. And a cargo crew half and half variant of Starship could mm-hmm. really do something in that market. It could so save us a lot of money too. Let's put it yes. that way. Yeah. Oh my God. You don't have to build satellites new every time. Yeah, just send we don't a Starship have to have up to replace what Missions for cargo and crew. And, you know, um, I want to address what everyone is probably thinking right now. So we have Starship that's been chosen for the human landing system for the lunar surface. We have Falcon Heavy that's playing a role in delivering some of the uh, cis-lunar gateway modules. What is the role now for Space Launch System and Orion? Yeah, you got. it kind of feels like SLS is now standing in the corner of the room while everyone else is dancing. I mean, what it happens? feels redundant in a way, but... Maybe there. Maybe I'm wrong here. I can understand that because it's it is a question that a lot of people had when this was developed. But the crucial thing to remember here with the lander and what NASA has selected here, NASA has given the vote of confidence for the system in space. Right. NASA is not giving a stamp of approval for the Starship system overall, and crucially as that a launcher landing part that we've right. seen. Well, and a, yeah, and yeah. specifically okay. as an Earth lander. Which is where we've seen, you know, SN, uh, the, the starships that they have tested so far have their issues. Just to put that in context, propulsive landing on the moon is easier because of the lower gravity. It just mm-hmm. it, the, the overall thing is easier to do. Or how how does yes. that change things when you're on the moon? Oh yeah, so it's significantly easier to land on the moon. So unlike starships, the landing profile that we've seen demonstrated, where it's belly flopping toward the surface and then relights three of its engines to flip and burn and come in to land, which involves be- atmospheric. Pressures exactly. to make it all happen. Exactly. And since the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, what you do is you just simply burn your Raptor engines to do a deorbit burn, a lunar deorbit burn. And then you arc slowly down toward the surface. And then what they'll do is they'll use thrusters mounted up toward the crew and cargo area, high, high, high above the lunar surface, to then control Starship's rate of descent, keep it level with the local terrain and touch it down so the raptor engines won't actually be used to do the physical landing or takeoff on the surface of the moon they'll only be used for the deorbit maneuvers and the in-space maneuvers to get to and from the lunar gateway which is where it'll either pick up its crews and where the uh, orion spacecraft will be waiting to take the crews home and that is where sls comes in starship is not a human launch system it's a human lunar landing system for NASA. The one that's being they developed still, for this mission. Exactly. So they still need a crew launch vehicle. And right now, to be very, very honest, your only option is Orion. And Orion is right. designed solely to launch on SLS. So SLS is still needed for the crew launch capability right now. Now, as Starship continues to evolve, I think we'll start having some harder discussions that will clash where where reality of what's needed will clash with what politicians in washington and what's are available, willing Chris? to do <laughs> so so and the availability on. of sls yeah. yeah 
Yeah, and it's and it's cost basis, which is so out of control. Well, so I feel just, like the first couple are already paid for. Those are those are paid for already, right? In development, I mean, money. In, in large part. I right. mean, the first vehicle is at this point because it, it, it's done. I mean, we're just waiting for the core stage to leave Louisiana and get to the Kennedy Space Center to stack it all together. A significant amount of the hardware for the second Artemis flight is already being built. And of course, we know that one of the astronauts on that mission will be one of the four Canadian Space Agency astronauts. Right. So things are coming. After that, it gets a bit nebulous with the Artemis schedule because the next one was supposed to be the lunar landing. But if the lunar landing is not going to happen, or if NASA wants like an Apollo 10 style, everything but the landing right. style test, uh, you know, that now they have to try to start figuring out what they actually want Artemis to be now that they're going to start to have components of the lunar gateway and they have a lander. Now you actually have to figure out what you need need and want your Artemis Orion missions to be. So let me get this straight. Mm -hmm. The starship that's going to land on the moon, it's going to go all the way to the moon empty. Is that correct? And then we need SLS to bring all the humans in a tiny capsule so they can get into a big, huge, giant lander. I think they'll bring cargo, Jamie. I think they'll bring cargo, though, Chris. Yeah. yeah so it'll be, from the Earth. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it'll be empty from a human perspective at liftoff, but probably a lot of cargo. I can't imagine yeah. NASA would pass up that opportunity. A free? No. I mean, SpaceX <laughs> oh, yeah, would totally. use that if NASA You're did. You're paying for it already. What an interesting stuff. sequence. You send a cargo ship to the moon. You take a giant rocket to get your traditionally small capsule with you and your buddies to the moon. And then that cargo ship becomes your lander. That yeah. just, it blows my mind. I mean, now in an alternate future or, or a potential future, I should say, not an alternate future. If NASA were to certify the Starship design for human launch and landing back on Earth, right? As the system is perfected, the plan would still be that your crew would not launch on your lunar lander, that the lunar lander would always be constantly staged out by the moon waiting for you. So, like, there could be a scenario in the future if, you know, things really change politically and Starship is the way NASA goes for human services as well, where a Starship would launch the crew out to the Lunar Gateway. And then the crew would use the lun- the Starship Lunar Lander also docked to the Lunar Gateway. So, basically, you'd have two gigantic Starships docked to this small little space station that's smaller than the Starships. <laughs> When but, we yeah. talk this out, that's, that's, how, really that's how you would do it. Um, <laughs> but that's how you would do it. And, and, and that will ultimately just come down to how different the designs have to be to land on the moon. Right, right. I don't know if you guys are seeing it here, but I feel like there's a lot more engineering going on than we need. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, it might honestly... I mean, what we're seeing is like, you know, th- th- this weird, like, we have a plan that's good. And like, people do agree we need the gateway, right? For that permanent yeah. presence. Right. We're just reaching a point that, where yeah. Starship has, or SpaceX has designed a multi use, multi purpose vehicle that has to be large to do that. So when you right. start comparing it to the sizes of places it might be going, it starts to get a little comical. Yeah. yeah. E- even though I think it could greatly help the gateway because. A cargo variant of Starship could also launch major components of the Gateway if NASA gets comfortable with it quickly enough. Well, right. that all depends on Starship's development and how fast they're able to get it to orbit. So, true. It could, you know, we could always see space launch system, you know, finally getting out of the the hangar and up to space. But one point I did want to make here 
was that before SpaceX can land humans with Starship on the moon, NASA wants to see them do a dry run without humans. Mm-hmm. A one full round trip. So yeah. I don't know what role, I mean, is it going to be SLS launches Artemis to orbit and then space and then Starship? Like, ah. I, I, I don't know. Is it going to be a SLS slash Orion or is it going to be completely separate at different times? I think it might be at different times. I think they'll do Artemis one doing, you know, that test launch swing Orion around the moon and back. Boom. Test is done. And then they'll do a separate test where they launch Starship to the moon, mm-hmm. leave it in orbit for a while and then do the landing and back. But don't yeah. they have to test the rendezvous as well? So, so they were a little cagey on that. Yeah. 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 So I I, I asked that question about exactly what that uncrewed demonstration would look like to NASA. And they basically said that what they were really interested in was the actual descent to the lunar surface. So using the Raptor engines to go from the halo orbit it will be in when it rendezvous with Orion into a lunar orbit and then firing those engines again descending to the lunar surface and using the thrusters to actually land that that's what they were that was the primary focus of the uncrewed test flight from there they would then decide what else they want but that's the basic architecture they're working around so it could inter it, it could interact with a with a crew flight like they could they could you do it like they did the demo one uncrewed test flight where it launched uncrewed but once it docked to the space station the crews went in it right and checked it out but then no one wrote it back down to earth right so you could run into a scenario where you do something similar you launch an orion you rendezvous with it you dock you test all that out the crew goes in and activates systems and works with it but then they all get back out go back into orion and then starship goes off and does its landing uncrewed right or you could do the whole thing uncrewed it's the options are kind of wide-ranging on that regard. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see because uh, Starship is still in development and this program was just announced last week or a couple yeah. days ago. So we'll have to see how it evolves. Let's move on to something less complicated. Flying a small helicopter on Mars. Yay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'd call that less complicated, <laughs> but man, yeah. this was exciting. That was a yeah, really, really exciting cool thing. I, I set my alarm for 6 a.m. Eastern time. I woke up and right on time I saw the first images coming in and what an extraordinary moment for humans and for the space program. Just yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, incredible. I, I mean, the, what, what was accomplished is, is basically like the equivalent because the atmosphere is so much thinner on Mars than right. it is here. It, it's the equivalent of flying a rotocraft or a helicopter like vehicle at altitudes that rotocraft have not been in earth's atmosphere. Right. Yeah. It's of flying at uh, around a hundred thousand feet. Yeah, 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 and and like it's only gone to fifty or something like that, mm-hmm. fifty thousand feet or something like yeah, that. Yeah, if you've ever seen the movie Everest or read Into Thin Air, there was <laughs> a a helicopter rescue in one of the base camps there that they could just barely get the helicopter to do, and they had to strip yeah. out seats. No rotocraft whatsoever in history has ever broken 50,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying here is that Everest is only, I forget exactly, but like 24,000 feet. So we're talking about like four times the height that someone had to strip down their helicopter and accept a risk to try and save someone's life. And the result of that 
is that it spins like all oh, bloody get out. It just spins at thousands of RPM. It's like taking a, an angle grinder in, you know, instead of a helicopter to space. It's 4,200 rotations per minute. And, and, and what we were talking about, that equivalent of you know, flying at 100,000 feet when right. rotorcraft on, on Earth, Earth have only gotten to 50,000 feet, it only got 10 feet off the ground on Mars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we're talking about. <laughs> that's like at least 10 times the speed that a passenger, you know, a typical helicopter yeah. that carries people on Earth would spin. You're talking, you know, hundreds of RPM versus thousands of RPM. It's, really it's an wild. extraordinary accomplishment. And it that worked. Should not be. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah. That's the most important part here is that we sent this. Okay, first of all, this is not even... You know, this is a, hel- a small helicopter. It's basically yeah. a drone, but that came along with this even gianter thing, you know, perseverance. Yeah. And for this little thing to even have its own little adventure and lifespan, and that it works, and it's it's extraordinary. And um, then it didn't it, get it hurt is. by flying to Mars, right. riding a skytrain, propulsive <laughs> landing, the bigger trip. Yeah, you know? it was just like, oh, yeah. oh, cool, let's go. And it's got me thinking of just probes, like flying little yep. probes all right. over and exploring that way, which is a whole new thing. Empire well, Strikes Back, man. The Empire's yeah. probe in the beginning. We have to get to that. <laughs> well, it is. And it's funny you should mention that, Jamie, because this, as as, as absolutely cool as this is, right? And it's, it's a techno- it is first and foremost a technology pathfinder. It has no scientific instruments on it whatsoever, except for a little camera that can be used to sort of look around the local area and find places for the perseverance rover to go drive to it's 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 kind of like this it's kind of like a little bird that tags along with with um, <laughs> with, with perseverance yeah it's but, a, yeah. but it is a major major technology demonstration and pathfinder for the upcoming dragonfly mission which will take an suv sized flying vehicle to saturn's moon titan and oh, fly man. this laboratory around the surface of Titan. So, so <laughs> a fl- we're yeah. going to make flying perseverance, flying basically. curiosity. Yeah, that's yes. basically the next yes. step. Yeah, and wow. instead of and instead of sending them to Mars, we're going. That's a bit close. Been there, onward mm-hmm. to Titan. <laughs> and what does Titan have for an atmosphere? Oh, a massively thick atmosphere, primarily of methane, where it, it rains methane. There are methane lakes. It has an entire hydrological system based around oh, wow. methane instead of water. It is outright fascinating. The Huygens probe that was uh, the European Space Agency's part of the Cassini NASA mission to Saturn entered Titan's atmosphere, I believe, in 2004 and parachuted down to the surface and collected an incredible amount of data on it. So yeah, this is kind of a follow-up mission to really look at Titan because studies have shown that liquid methane, it just takes a lot longer, but liquid methane can, like liquid water, serve as a generation pool for amino acid sequences that eventually lead to life. That's incredible. So I just looked it up and it says the surface pressure is about 50% higher than on Earth. You have 1.5 mm-hmm. bar, and because of that high pressure, you can have gaseous methane in the atmosphere mm-hmm. and also liquid methane on the surface. So yeah, they have like a whole water cycle yeah. of <laughs> methane. And uh, so theoretically, I mean, I'm sure there's some other problem like explosives or something, but you could fly at much lower RPM through something that's soupy, sick, that's oh, soupy yes. thick. Yeah, I mean, much more equivalent to, to flying a rotocraft on earth and i mean yeah, and basically yeah. just think of it as a gigantic autonomous drone that's what the dragonfly right. mission is to 
Oh, it says yeah. it's actually mostly nit- 94.2% nitrogen. The methane so is inert. like five and a half percent. Yeah. So yeah, wow. your risk your risk of detonation is very low because nitrogen right. is and inert. there's no oxygen around anyway. So <laughs> True. We can't, yeah. Well, and nitrogen is actually what's used uh, on launch pads. Once you fuel the rocket, you have to safe all of those propellant lines of all the explosive propellant in them before the oh, rocket lifts off, and it's there? gaseous nitrogen that is pumped yeah. in to do that. Yes. You had me a giant robot flying over the surface. <laughs> I know. That's so crazy. I know. Is this right? gonna be is this gonna be a this is gonna be a battery powered craft, right? So we've Solar, gotta generate uh, yes. yep. generate enough power. I mean, I guess um, these flights aren't that actually long, no, but. no, no. It won't be solar. It will use a radiothermo electric propulsion like Curiosity and Perseverance do. So little a little nuclear power source. Right, yep. right. Basically beyond Jupiter. Yeah, solar panels aren't really how you want to go because you're too far right. out at that point. Yeah, and you'd still likely probably have to use the RTG to charge a battery and then fly off the battery and then go back or something. But well, that's fascinating, right? I got to yeah. read more about that. <laughs> well, guys, we have about five minutes left, and uh, the big story this week that we need to get into is SpaceX is about to launch its second operational crew rotation mission to the International Space Station. It will be their third human launch. And this is scheduled for Thursday, April 22nd, 6, 11 a.m. Eastern time. And that day is also Earth Day. The reason I know that is because Supercluster will be celebrating Earth Day this year. We've got some really cool stuff coming. But Chris, how are we looking for this mission? I know SpaceX put out a tweet a couple hours ago saying that um, vehicle crew are ready, but they are watching some weather systems. Yeah, so as of recording right now on Tuesday afternoon, weather at the Kennedy Space Center for the actual liftoff is not the primary concern. That's actually looking really good. A slight chance of wind issues on Thursday. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, on Thursday, but not really anything to be worried about. Slight chance of a rain shower on the backup day on Friday. But again, it's 80% go on Thursday and 90% go on Friday. What we're really going to be watching is the downrange abort weather. So right. basically, if you were to draw an imaginary line on the surface of Earth that the Falcon 9 would fly along as it's launching to orbit with the crew, mm. the weather along that ground track, and if you extend that ground track even once they get to orbit or are very close to orbit, it basically, you want to be looking at the weather anywhere from what it is at the Kennedy Space Center up across the North Atlantic to just off the western coast of Ireland. Because theoretically, anywhere along that point, you could abort off the top of the Falcon 9 and have to splash down into the Atlantic. And the weather along that abort track is what's looking not as great for Thursday as it is for Friday. That's not to say Thursday's out. It's just to say Mm -hmm. abort weather-wise, Friday might be looking better, but they're still going to keep trying for Thursday, and they'll eventually make a decision as to whether or not they think it's acceptable to send the crew to the vehicle and get them in and start fueling so we will have to wait and see but overall things are not looking bad i should i i want to point that out even if they end up slipping things are not looking bad for a liftoff by the end of the week of the crew two flight great we're really excited we actually have eric kuna will be shooting off site um since the launches at six in the morning Mm -hmm. And most viewers will actually be asleep. Eric is going to experiment with shooting a streak from a little bit further away and try to capture the Milky Way and everyone's favorite nebula shots that he does. And uh, John Krause will be setting up a couple of remote cameras at the launch pad for Supercluster. So we're excited to see those photos. 
And we're excited for the launch and yeah. obviously wishing the best to SpaceX and NASA. Some notable things about this mission. Thomas Pesquet, who uh, already flew one mission, this will be his second. And this is the first time a European is flying on a privately developed spacecraft, correct? That is correct. Yeah. And the first time since 2011, when another vehicle named the Endeavor took its final flight. It's the first time a European has flown on a U.S. spacecraft since the final flight of the shuttle Endeavor. Uh, And Thomas will ride the Crew Dragon Endeavor up to the space station this time. That's awesome. A lot of people getting use of this uh, Dragon. I think when we used to imagine the commercial crew program, we we always used to say NASA astronauts, but um, yeah. what's really emerging here is a real international collaboration utilizing there, the benefits of the private space industry. There is. And of course, NASA's goal is to always have at least one international partner astronaut on every Crew Dragon flight up to the International Space Station for the program. But I think, too, some other cool pieces of trivia about this flight. Megan MacArthur will become only the fourth woman to pilot a U.S. space mission, this launch. And when they arrive at the International Space Station, it will mark only the second time in history that two Japanese astronauts are living and working together aboard the space station. Uh, The last time it happened was in April of 2010, when a space shuttle mission delivered Naoko Yamazaki to the space station, where none other than Suichi Noguchi was already in one of his long duration increments. And of course, Aki Hoshide launching on crew two will meet none other than Soichi Noguchi up nice. on the space station. <laughs> Soichi's everywhere is basically yeah, just what yeah. I've come to understand. Um, no, but, but that'll be really cool for them too. And of course, Aki's mission was originally scheduled for last year to coincide with Japan and Tokyo hosting the 2020 Olympic Games. It was moved to 2021 as part of the pandemic reshuffle and everything, and it is still hoped that he will be on board. But of course, those games and whether or not they will be held this year are still in question. But that's what they're hoping for, to have a Japanese citizen on the station during their hosting of the Olympic Games. If they have the Olympics. If they have them. Yes, we all have to wait and see. Thank you, Chris. I'm really excited for Crew 2, and I'm excited to get back down to Cape Canaveral, hopefully for the next mission. Uh, The reason I'm not going down there this time around is because NASA is still enacting strict COVID regulations and rules, and we sort of uh, have to you know, work around that. And I want to come down there so we could do our famous supercluster launch poster and sort of create some fanfare around the mission. And we want to do that when it's safe and when we have guidance from NASA and um, the companies that we work with. I'm going to pass it over to Jamie. Uh, I think it's time for us to wrap up the show. Yeah. Thanks again, guys. It's really great to have so much space news going on. Gives us lots to look forward to aside from the launch in in just a couple days. As with all launches, you can stay up to date on when they're going and watch live streams using our launch tracker app or at supercluster.com. And also please check out our new ISS traffic tool where you can see the comings and goings of all the spaceships and astronauts at the ISS. And remember, as always, space is for everyone.